The Business Hour podcast is kindly sponsored by photo-me.ie. Hi, Jim McCausland here, presenter of The Business Hour Show on Ross FM. Just dropping by to let you know The Business Hour Show airs every Thursday from 5pm to 6pm on Ross FM 94.6. To listen in, visit rossfm.ie forward slash live or download my weekly podcast from anchor.fm forward slash the business or show text your questions and comments to 083-85-99748 or info at rossfm.ie the business or show supporting local and international business through local radio Hello and welcome to a business show on Ross FM with me, Jim McCausland. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the show by Sean Brown, videographer, owner of Hell's Kitchen in Castlereagh and the Railway Museum Castlereagh. Hello, Sean, and welcome to the show today. Thank you very much, Jim. Sean, before we start to talk about your businesses and all that, can you tell us a wee bit about yourself? I was born to John L. Lenny Brown in 1952. And uh, my father had been married before. I'd be the eldest of the second family. And uh, the first family, we had PJ and Mary, who died this day 10 years ago. She had been the first Bangard in Ireland, you know. And um, my mother was a businesswoman, and my father was he was working for the council at the time. And she worked in a, a shop in Castlereagh called Regan's, and she established her own business just after the war with £25. And she bought 20 boxes of oranges. She was very enterprising and the soul like hot bones because it wasn't an orange scene from the beginning of the war until the end, so people went mad for it. Then she ran that business until 1967 and then she retired and um, my uncle took over the business and uh, she then started the Castle Inn in 1969. So she was really the business woman behind it and they ran it until 1980. I took over then and um, I was at it since and it's closed now for the last 10 years but um, I changed the name and I did different things. I suppose the last thing I did really was putting a, a locomotive into the back of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, how would you describe your parents' approach to business? What was their outlook of business? I think my mother was a fantastic businesswoman. My father would be a supporter in that, like, because she's a woman that would be prepared to take the chance. That's why I love that uh, Kenny Rogers song, The, the, the Gambler, you know. Yeah. And um, oh, she was great because, it, it, like, she, she was in the supermarket business and all, and she had a great personality, and she did well while she was there, you know. But I wouldn't think I was as good because I remember there's a friend of mine out there in Clover Hill called Eddie Egan. He said, they said, they won't come to see the businessman. They'll come to see the agent that put the train in the back of the pub. <laughs> Sean, businesses have changed a lot since the 50s. What significant changes have you seen over the years? Oh, I, I've seen big changes. Um, I remember going back when I was going to school down in Summerhill and there was uh, Father Gilmartin that time. I'm talking about over 50 years ago. And he it mentioned about the multinationals and all that. In the town back in the year, the small shop. And that's all. it's a pity in a way because you go in and get the bit of news and this, this sort of personal touch. And that's gone completely. And he had actually foretold that at the time. And in Castle now you have two or three big shops. And 
The smallest one we have now at the moment, and it should be severed, is Tom Flynn's. You know, because it has everything in it, and the young people should go in because that that day is going to disappear. And he's still there operating at eighty two. You know, yeah. it's just it, that's the big change I see, and the social aspect has gone out of it. And you know, people coming in, they was, um, had themselves organised to do the shopping on a Friday, and they had the shopping list. But now they can if they go only for a bottle of milk, they go, go in now, and there's no problem at all. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the big change. I remember uh, up to about nineteen fifty nine, you could hear the ass and cars going up and down the town, and then suddenly when the sixties came in, then the, the the car took over because my uncle John Joe had a, had a horse and cart which I remember from 1959 he bought a Thames van and that was the end of the horses you know Sean you've been a businessman for many years with a career in weddings photography uh, alongside the Castlery Railway Museum and Hell's Kitchen Museum but was this your first choice of career that you wanted to pursue? No the first choice I did I, I was in Minute for a, a small period of time you know and uh, I left then and I, um, I came into the pub and then uh, my mother then decided she wanted to run a laundry yet, and we had that for a while and I used to do a bit of wiring, I, I did that for a while and I did a bit of photography but it was by chance I got into the video business because I loved recording trains and there was a couple at home getting married for their third time you see and they were in their 50s so they brought me along just for the crack. So that's how I started. And I showed the video the next day in the pub and the whole place was packed. So it was just out of chance it got into that business. The first camera I bought in 86 cost me 2000 And I found I was getting a few weddings. And the next camera I bought was £12,500. And the whole place thought it was mad, you know, because it was a house sold about three doors from where I live for the same price. This is 1988. But yeah. thanks to God it worked out very well. During my heyday, I was doing 70 weddings during the summer, you know. Yep. But it was very hard running a pub and have that business going. Mm-hmm. But that's the way it went anyway, you know. So I'd be out doing a wedding on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I wouldn't do it now, but I do a few and it keeps me going. I'm quite happy with that, you know. Yeah. Listen to you speak. You're obviously a very proud Castlery man. What do you love best about Castlery? Well, I'm delighted that I was able to make my living in Castlery because I love Castlery. And it, it was a great town years ago. Please God, it'll come around again. There was only one good thing about this uh, COVID. They're starting to wake up to the rural place. They're doing up the roads and you see what's happening in Roscommon. Because it was all orientated towards uh, Dublin. When I see them opening that hospital there and they put the big stadiums in there. So there's pure madness when you think about it and all the space we have around the country. you know. But Castlery would be my town that I love. And I'm glad, as I said before, to make my living in it. And, you know, it's just a town. I have that little bit of pride for it, you know. Yeah. And uh, that article that appeared in the Sunday Independent last Sunday week, and I was I was delighted because it gave the elephant a bit of a boost, and it gave the Sean the harder thing keeps coming back again, and the fact that we have a railway museum there, you know, it all helps, you know, and. You know, the, I see the government are sort of, uh, tourists are sort of have this wide Atlantic way. They should have something up the Midlands to keep us going to as well. You know, if you come up with some excuse to bring people across. I do often think of Killarney, how it made it. Uh, you probably know, Jim, mm-hmm. it was Queen Victoria. And yep. from when she came there, Bob's your uncle. And, and I often think of uh, in Turber Abbey over there. There wasn't a word about it until uh, who got married, some of them celebrities got married mm-hmm. and people started to use it. You know, it's just, it gets notoriety from that, you know. Yeah. Over the years, you must have seen Castlery change a lot from being a very populated area 
to people moving away to the cities and all that there. Do you think that will come around again? I hope it will, you know, because everything goes in cycles. But the Cassidy, I remember when I was a youngster back in the 50s and 60s, you had McDermott's and you had shoe stores. It was one of the most successful towns. And I remember as a young fellow going into McDermott's and they had departmental things, you know, and they had this thing where uh, when you went as far as to pay for your goods, uh, the, the assistant took down a little... Like a, like, a, like, a, like a little cup and he put it up into a, a like a little wire and he pulled this chain and it flew off into a, a central office you know and kids just get a great kick out of that but people came from all over the place to shop in Cassidy you know but yeah. things have changed but please God it, it will come again in time you know yeah. Getting back to what you said about the Covid pandemic and more people working from home and that I think the future when you look at businesses now is more of a hybrid model whereby people will be expected to work in the office maybe two days a week and work from home three days a week. And I think that opens great potential for rural areas. Why would you pay for uh, houses in the city when you're only going into work in the office two days a week, you would commute. Come down to the rural areas, the cost of living is, is cheaper, the cost of housing is cheaper, the quality of life is better. Uh, there. So I think if there's a positive to come out of the whole COVID pandemic, it might be the renewal of rural Ireland again. I'm a great believer in this, that the necessity is the mother of invention. I probably know that the, the diesel engine was invented before the war by Rudolf Diesel. There wasn't a word about it, but when the war came, they developed, you see. So I think what has happened out of the pandemic, you know, even on the railway take, for example, every signal was at green. This poor devil went out one night to pull the signal and it was frozen, big train crash. So everything suddenly turned to red then after that, you know. What I'm trying to say is this, that, you know, it's like people uh, doing up the house. If they have the stations coming, we've got to have the whole place done in a short time. Necessity. And we're all the same. Uh-huh. We were all worked to deadlines and all that, which is a pity. But out of this um, COVID and all the rest of it, you will see good because there always good comes out of, even after the war in England now, I knew they blew the place to pieces, but didn't they get houses building and the whole thing shifted again, you know? Sean, we are talking earlier about Castlery and your pride in Castlery and the great things that have happened over the years. When I think about Castlery, one story that uh, people always tell me about is Cindy the Elephant. And I believe uh, you have a, a connection, one of your relatives owned the bar that this was involved in. Could you tell us the story? It goes back to uh, 1963 and uh, my granduncle had a pub. It was Stephen Mannion's. It was halfway down the town. And uh, Cindy the Elephant, part of the circus uh, makeup was that you had to have a tour of the town. It was advertising. So... Actually, he went into uh, Stephen Mannion's pub, had a glass of stout, turned in the pub, and on the way out, Patsy Lynn was coming from a wedding, Patsy Lynn Senior. He took the photograph. That photograph is a uh, Jim, because I mentioned before that um, Shane was doing scanning, negatively scanning 70,000, and that's the prize one. So that's what made the, f- the elephant famous, because I often find, you know, it's like Thomas in the Bible, you have to have proof this is the thing, and that's the proof the elephant was there. So... About 10 years after, the elephant died up in Athen Rye. And there was a building contractor in Kessery called John Waldron. And uh, they were looking for a place to bury the elephant. And he arranged with Kessery Towns Trust that he be buried in Kessery. So he was brought down from Athen Rye and uh, the, 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 he got two of his men, Noel Raftery and Michael Raftery, to dig the hole. So there was a big crowd at the funeral, you see. 
And when they took the elephant out and put it into the hole, he wouldn't go down because of the water level. So Michael had to burst the elephant's uh, stomach and there was a ferocious smell all over the place. So in fact, there was only one child left at the funeral in the finish. But when he went back then, if as John Walter, and he gave him the finest blinding he ever got in all his life because he made a disgrace of himself. But he had no other alternative but to bury the elephant. So everybody knew over, say, 30 years or so or more and uh, didn't... A fellow called Dennis Cooper in Cassery said to me one day, you know, we should mark the elephant's grave. So... We had a, a part of a generator in Cassery because Cassery had its own power plant until about 1938. And the local blacksmith who owned the property where I am used, used the end of the generator for to put the iron wheels on the, you know, on the wooden wheels. So anyway, we got, we got back the, the, the Michael Raster again with the bulldozer. He lifted out this thing, it must be about two tonne, and we put it down on the grave. This was 2014. And uh, then... Over the last five or six years, you had the men shed building an elephant. Then we had to get a, a tombstone. So I went to the local monumental sculpture, and he told me there was a man that in Ballyhonest that hadn't paid for his uh, father's headstone. And so they took the headstone off your man, and by God, they put it down on top of the elephant. So we wrote the epitaph on the back of the stone. So I, it's really in, in keeping with the present time, recycling, you see. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, then uh, over, it, it, I, the last while now, even last Sunday week with the Independent, Liam Collins did a fantastic article on it. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing all the people that come to see the elephant's grave because there's no place in Ireland where such things exist. I say if it happened up in Capham, they'd have the poor old devil recycled, sent off to burn house. But no, in Cassidy we had Cindy's grave. And the, the kids love it too, especially, you know. Yeah. Sean, each week on the show, I ask our guest to pick three tracks of music for us to listen to. What's the first track of music you have for us? Well, the first track I think of is uh, The Boxer, because it goes back to 1970 when I was down in Summerhill and there was a... There was a priest that time, Lord of Mercy, Father, Father John McGowan, and he was a great fan of Simon Garfunkel. And the song I used to love was The Boxer. That's coming up next. Thank you. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. When I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station, running scared. Seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go Looking for the places only they would know Asking only workmen's wages, I come looking for a job, but I get no offers. Just to come on from the wars on 7th Avenue. I do declare there were times when I was so lonesome, I took some comfort there. 
Permanent full-time accommodation assistant required for Kilronan Castle, County Roscommon. The ideal candidate must have good organisational skills, strong work ethic, 
teamwork and good time management. Keypack Group County Roscommon are looking to recruit a channel development manager. The position is permanent and full-time. Radiographer Clinical Specialist in Ultrasound, HSE Roscommon Specific Purpose Contract. For more information on the jobs advertised, please visit jobs.ie. Welcome back. I'm joined in studio today by Sean Brown from Hale's Kitchen and Kesselry Railway Museum in Kesselry, County Roscommon. Sean, I mentioned earlier Hale's Kitchen. Could you tell our listeners a wee bit about that business and the Castlery Railway Museum? Well, I took over the business in 1980 and uh, from my parents, and it was called the Castle Inn, and that was the original name they put on it uh, in 1969 when it was opened. And uh, the reason that I went back to the original name is because while I was there as a young man, um, people talked about Hill's Kitchen, and how it got its name was this, that back in the 40s and 50s, to drink in a pub, you had to be a bona fide traveller. That meant you had to be three miles from the pub. And the girls caught you, they'd actually measure from your bedroom, where you spend most of your time, to the pub, with a small little wheel to make sure you were in, within the, their miss. So, that's how, the, uh, and then Paddy had this pub, and it was a horrid, it, Paddy McDonald, he was a nice man, but it was a horrid kippo place altogether. And they tolerated it because they could drink, and such outside lightning hours. And they also could drink, and people don't realise this, but Patrick's Day was a closed day. Mm. And uh, what they used to do was just go into him. And when the pubs had opened, then they began out of Pelham McDonald's. So Hell's Kitchen was the name of it. Because it was, and how you knew he was open in the morning was the smoke used to be coming across the top of the door, you know. Yeah. But I'll never forget the day I was going to Summerhill in 1965 and um, my mother had bought me a suit, but it was a bit big for me. This was the whole idea to grow into it. But Paddy <laughs> McDonough was out to the pub and this the last time I was speaking to him, I never thought we'd end up in the place. And he said to me, Father, Jesus, look at the gospel. He said, the suit is too big for him, you know. <laughs> but Greg Kelly was telling me then he was going the same day and he got a suit too small for him. So Paddy John Newman told him, come back again. I gave him another suit. Sure. He, had to buy a, he had to buy another suit, you know, but <laughs> I'll always remember that day. But um, then uh, when I called it that name, uh, Bishop Conway didn't like it at all, you know. He would be given out to me. And I remember one day in particular, he was going past the pub, and they used to have a driver that time, you see. And I knew him for, for the reason that I told you earlier, and because the nice air waving at him and the care. And he was that intrigued with the sign over, he didn't even see me, you know. So, and then Christy Jones was on to me, too, and I said, look at it, I said, I said, I want to only call it for the crack, you know, but it was controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember the night we opened, uh, we had Roy here employed and he dressed up as a devil. And we had we had the uh, straw boys and we had, we had a great night that night, you know. But it was, it was very gimmicky and it was, you know, but the thing about the pub is you only get about seven years out and you have to start changing back again, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to really reinvigorate the you, brand every oh yeah, well the, re- the reason for that is this. Because if you don't, people, oh, it's all habit, we're all habit forming, you see. Mm-hmm. So they get out of the habit and not come into you. But when you do it up again, oh, God, we will see the place, so this is how you get it going. And you get so long old, but that's the trouble, you have to put the money back into it again, and that's the only way you keep it going, you see, you know. Yeah. Sean, I believe that you were married with a young family at the time you purchased the bar. Had you any concerns about going into the bar trade when it came to the viability of the business in the small rural town? Well, I didn't uh, buy it. I inherited it, you know. And uh, that, uh, it was my father and mother there beforehand. Uh, no, it, I, di- I didn't mind. I enjoyed the pub trade for a certain amount of years because you had, we had a, lo- a local trade that time. And then you had such things as closing time, you know. 
But that's gone out the door completely and your clientele has changed. And I would not like to go back to it again now, you know. I suppose between my parents been there and been there myself, I was 39 years at the, at the business. Quite you wouldn't get in jail for that length of time, you know. <laughs> but I, I'm glad to be out with now. I do still do a video, a bit of work, and I still do a bit of copying. And, and now I'm into this thing of putting uh, tapes onto memory stick. And, you know, so I keep myself... You yeah. know, keep yourself up to date. And I think it's very important, no matter, no matter, I'd be a pensioner now, of course, but I think it's very important to keep yourself occupied because if you don't, you know what the granny syndrome is, you know, sit in the corner and die, and I, didn't, I don't want that to happen. Keep going as long as I can. And, and I'm yeah. glad, very thankful and, very, you know, appreciative that I have me health to be able to do what I'm at now at the moment, you know. And I think a person is, should always put up their gratitude because that, that gets rid of negativity very quickly. Yeah, you know? yeah. Sean, you say about the the bar trade changing the, to different trades from when you were involved in it. What's changed so much? Well, I, is it I, people's attitude to drinking, or is it? Sure, I'd I be at weddings now, and I've been out to trade about twelve years, and I see them going around drinking these little small. You know, one time a fellow go in and get a few pints, but now they can't get themselves drunk quick enough. We know these old shots to have, and. Um, no, but that time, no, you'd have great crack with them, and during the weekend, they'd be they'd be uh, giving their stories to you, and you you kept a certain amount of confidentiality because mm-hmm. you cu- you couldn't. But I remember one fella said to me one night, "Will they give me a dinner?" And I said, "No." So I went back after ten minutes. I said, "Thanks for asking me." I the same, and then they went ballistic, you know. But but then <laughs> you have different things, and like uh, you know, yeah, we have great characters. I always think back in Maliki Brodzik and Sonny Raftery and the different people. And you could expect them every night, and they're all set in their own places, you know. But um, and there were some very decent people that time. But they're all dead now. That's, that's the mm-hmm. sad part. But a different setup altogether. And um, you know, yeah, you'd have to be young to be in the pub trade now and to be able to keep up because hours are fierce long, you know. And people expect to be there the whole time, you know. And that's where I suffered to a certain degree because when I was out doing weddings, you wouldn't be there, and people want to see you there. And mm-hmm. it was all businesses, you know, and still, still the same, you know. They, not that they want to see you; they, you, they want you to see them. Yeah. Pre-COVID, what were some of the difficulties that faced pub owners? When oh, you look at the industry, what are the... Oh, I think the, f- the first thing that came in really was the, um, the, the, the smoking ban, mm. you know, because, uh, and then it happened to go outside, and then when um, it got very strict with the drink driving. Now, I can see that to a point, you know, but I, I've been at the trade as long as I have, and nobody ever left the pub where I was trading and hit anybody or anything like that, you know. And you, you, you were, the, the amount of drink they were drinking was monitored. If I saw a fellow getting too much drink, I'd, I'd put him in the car and bring him home, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember one occasion, it's going back to 1974, and I brought this man home one night, and he couldn't tell me where he lived. Jeez, I was up and down the road half the night. So eventually I went into a neighbour and he brought me to the house. And about a month afterwards, someone else brought him home, let him out of the car on the main road and he got killed. You know, so that's the sort of responsibility you have that, uh, you mm-hmm. know, but then drinking at home, I, you know, drink is cheaper. There's no control over anything like that, you know, and I think it's not good really, you know. Yeah. Like you were involved in the pub trade for a long, long time. Where do you see the pub trade going in the future? Well, I, I hope it's, it's just, we won't have as many pubs. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the, the pub that will survive is the one that will be able to do a bit of food and have it, you know, it's very hard to by yourself because you see a, a lot of uh, Shebians um, going up around and get, they get in the habit of using the Shebians and it, if they go out and buy a drink it's much cheaper mm-hmm. but sure, the last thing you go into a pub is for a drink really you win for the bit of a chat and a bit of company and stuff like that you know? yeah. 
one of the funny things, if there is a funny thing uh, to come out of COVID, is the massive amount of coffee shops that have sprung up everywhere. Uh, you can't look at anywhere now without seeing a horse trailer that's been turned into a coffee shop. Uh, there. Is that the new is that the new out- outlet for people instead of the pub, where they go and they have a coffee and. Well, yeah, I think it's I, I think it, I think it's very important for people to socialise because I do see in Castorino you have Benny's and you have Hester's and you have Tully's. People go in for the coffee, go in for the chat, you know, and yeah. that's the safest medium. But I think about twenty years ago they were talking about um, this about the government wanted to bring in coffee shops at that stage with the pub. No, that's the way it's going to go because people love meeting their friends and having this bit of a chat and and that, that's this yeah. you know keep you keep you going. Sean, Hell's Kitchen was the now-famous location in 1992 which brought the government down and put Hell's Kitchen on the map. Could you tell me the story of the Nighthawk show? Well, about, say, the Wednesday before uh, it actually came about, Sean Doherty was out in the care and he rang me and he said, uh, would it be okay if we have uh, Nighthawks in the pub? And oh Jesus! I said, no problem at all. So then later on in the in the day, he actually rang me up and said, it's going ahead. So on the morning, it happened anyway. Uh, Philip Camps came, and uh, the crew came, and I remember going up to Lenny Maddy to get sound equipment because Charlie McGetting was there, and Brendan Nimitz, who I went to school with, and they were doing the the music on the night. So. Uh, anyway, didn't uh, we got the equipment and we were all ready for it? And then earlier on that day, Anne and I. Uh, we had to go to Farrah's, this lady crossroads, to do uh, a jive at the crossroads because the, John Waters was after bringing out his book, Jiving at the Crossroads. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing was around John Waters, but we didn't really know what, what was going to happen. So and anyway, that night came and the place was packed and Sean Doherty was in the middle table with Shea Healy doing the interview and Sean was drinking Lucasade. And after the interview was finished, he came up to Farrah's, the mayor, he said, I'm after saying something very significant tonight. But when they were gone, Shea Healy sung, Danny Brooks sung, and Joe Caulfield, oh, we had fierce crack afterwards. And uh, there was, there was, uh, there was uh, Jerry Reynolds was there too as well. He was doing the correspondent. He had a few from the Scotland Herald too as well. But anyway, that was all over. And the God didn't I get a, a call. When they started doing the editing part of it, they realised, and Shea Healy didn't cop on at all what he was after saying, that he had dropped a bombshell. Because I think what some of the producers, Philip Camps, brought in Bruce Arnold in, and he said, this is the job. So we got the papers, headlines on the Sunday about uh, three-headed God that brought us down to, to Head Kitchen. Um, then they had that um, Charlie has, he has succumbed to his ninth life but didn't RT go on strike. And in fact, when Charlie, Charlie High was doing the broadcast, there was only one camera there. And he, he denied it first, and then after 10 days, he, he had to give in. So that, that finished that then, you know. But it was great for about six months afterwards. So I said to one of the reporters, because the papers are on TV every so often, so I was half celebrity, and they said to me that, um, that you know, that one of the reporters was saying that, you know, it was, it, was, it was great for about six months afterwards, but you want to be shafted if every six months to give a warning, you know, that's the way to And how did you feel when your your bar got so much attention 
out of this Nighthawk show that was aired, the fact that they were linking the interview with the downfall of the Hohe government. Um, how did that make you feel? I'm not really into politics, you see, but I suppose my father was involved with Fianna Fáil and I suppose Sean Doherty had been in and out and I was after opening Hell's Kitchen and doing the place up. So he wanted to do this in his own constituency, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I didn't feel bad about it, sir. My God, it was great. Um, and then it was, and the amount of people that called to the place and it made it very famous too as well. And every so often it appears on television and you see the interview, but it never actually mentions Hell's Kitchen. But people know it was there, you see, you know. Sean, although Hell's Kitchen is now closed, it was once a stop-off destination for many famous people. We've talked about the politicians. Who else visited your, well, your bar? I, 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 I went to school now with Paul Claffey, so he brought in Joe Dolan. And uh, that's the only time I ever met him, actually. And lucky enough, I was into the photography, so I captured the, I, I captured the photographs of him. And then um, Tom, out of the Reardons, was in one day. And um, a few people like that, you know, and I, I let them have their own privacy. And um, then other things were associated with uh, Pat Kinney. Uh, I was doing a video with Marion Carroll in that loan. Uh, I was cured at knock and we're up. To, I had a photograph taken with him too as well. And uh, then we had um, Jerry Ryan in the pub as well. And I won a, a video camera. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what I remember about was that in 1989, I did a video out in that the Ballantubber Stritcher race. And uh, where they put three fellas up in a stretcher, or four, and they bring them from one pub to another. And they drink a pint up in it, with the one fellow there, Pat King, and they shook the goods out of them all together. And I just got the, when he had the third pub done or fourth, I got him actually vomiting the pint up, and that went on the Jerry Ryan secret show, and I won a video camera. So the following year he came down to open the festival, so he came in the first the pub, and I remember photographing him too as well, you know. I'd like to talk about the Castlery Railway Museum for a second, which opened in 1999, uh, that you're involved in, Sean. How did you come about the idea of a railway museum? Well, I'd been always uh, a railway enthusiast since I was a child, and... Um, because the reason for that, because my, my, my uncle was a character from the station, John Joe Quinn, and he had set me up in the horse and cart in the 50s. So steam was just on the way out that time, and I got bugged. But that interest remained dormant until I came home here again in 1975. And uh, the RPSI were running a, um, a rail tour between Claremorris and Colony for the, to over the, that section of track, which actually closed and has closed since. And that's when the bug bit me. But... When I was a young fella going up to Dublin, I'd be passing the train you actually used to go from Castlery into Athlone onto Moat. That no longer exists. That finished in 73. But in the 50s, you'd be going through Mullingar. And I'd seen hundreds of steam engines up ready for scrap in that time. So I always said to myself over the years, do you know, if I was old enough that time and I approached the company uh, to buy an engine, would they sell it to me? So didn't this dream come back again in 1995? When the engine, the A-class one I have, was actually purchased from uh, Manchester, from Metropolitan Vickers, the boss, 60 of them, and this was that engines that actually replaced the steam, I said, I'll have a go at it. But I was fortunate enough, Nighthawks was good to me, because the CEO, uh, David Waters, had been in the pub with the, the area manager, and he had met me. So that when I made my application to buy a locomotive, it was, he was the boss, and he said he can have one. But I thought they would not sell me one. And there's a terrible lot of railway societies around the country can't understand how uh, CIE sold to a private individual. So anyway, he, he said, OK. Well, then, well, I had, uh, the, the engine itself, 
I bought it for scrap value, which was only £1,600. Mm-hmm. But by the time I was lucky enough, the County Enterprise Board gave me 35000 towards it, but the whole thing cost 140000 So the pit where I put the train into, it cost 14500 uh, it's the same as you would have for putting cattle into, you know, and then I had to build around it. But over the years, I was very fortunate. I was collecting railway memorabilia, so I made the whole lot into a museum. I had Sean Mulrine in then about 10 years ago. I always quote him. He says, you have the fabulous place here, but you're in the wrong place. Which comes back to my point that if the tourist would do something more for the Midland places like uh, Glenview, and then you have you have Down and Drummond, then you have... Uh, Michael Kennedy has a, and then you have loads of little places that if, if they could sort of promote me a bit more. But please God, that'll happen, you know. Yeah. But it's a dream come true, and um, it's the only thing I, after my time I'd be thinking, you know, I often quote the saying that a many a man sows a tree who she doesn't expect to enjoy. And um, it's, it's just, I love, I love the railway, mm-hmm. and it's my life, and I, I, do, I do visitors coming to the place and any time anyone takes a visit they do enjoy it really you know because you'd have little stories and all that you know and you know yeah. well if they're interested or not straight away you know the way they look at things and they take things in you know yeah. Sean what were some of the stages involved in the Railway Museum project and how difficult was it in the 90s to get the necessary authorities to help with the idea oh sure when I came, went to the bank initially I, I, I was friendly with the bank manager, Eddie Highland. He told me he had to write 17 letters in to get... They, they couldn't see it. And then I had the place then, when I was getting ready for it, was closed for about three years. So your figures would be down. And you know the mm-hmm. way the bank look at things, you know. And um, lucky enough, I did. I, I, I got the money all right, you know. But I was after building a new house at the same time, so I always think I pity anybody that hit the recession when they did. Because mm-hmm. if the same thing happened to me at the time I did that thing, I was gone. Yeah, that's reality. Because I remember your man coming down from the bank, he says, well, he was sent down with some dude, he says, I don't like the situation to arrive that I have to tell you to sell the place. So Jesus, I said, that was a great start for me, you know. But thanks be to God, I don't owe any money. And, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm happy enough, you know. It, it, it's just as long as I'd, I'd hate to be in the situation when you have the bank breathing down your neck, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the idea of bringing a train museum to Castle Ree. You are very close to the Castlery train station itself and all that there. It must have been great for tourism to bring people into the town to have the museum that you set up. Oh, it, it is. It's great. But I find myself that most of the visitors I have will be from over over in um, England because there's about three million railway enthusiasts there. It's very big in England. You wouldn't have as many in Ireland, but... Um, Surprising all you get now. I'd, I'd be getting, uh, you get a few busloads every so often from people that are retired. And, you know, you know they enjoy coming to see it and all the rest of it. And what I love especially is that if someone comes from the likes of Kerry and they come from, say, say from Farden 4 or Valencia, I love to show them the staffs I have between Farden 4, uh, Mountain Stage, Kilorglan and um, them places because they're associated with the camp. That's why I often say that railway line that they had from uh, Farron Ford down to Valencia Harbour, it was a sin it was ever closed. If it had survived another 10 years, because it actually went up to the, the summit there over Dingle Bay, the most scenic route in the country, 
you know, like I, I saw a program lately on television, and God, they're open and rave like hell. It's a pity they have to close. They're on about environment and all that crack, I'm sure. There's not more environment than a train, you know. Sean, the history of rail transport in Ireland began only a decade after that of Great Britain. Uh, by its peak in 1920, Ireland had 3,500 route miles, which worked out around 4,200 kilometres. The current status of the railway network is less than half of that amount, with a large unserviced area around the border with Northern Ireland. Do you think that Ireland will ever em- embrace rail travel again in the same way that it did in the 1920s? Um, I, 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 I hope to do to a certain extent, but it's a pity that the, 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 at that time, when you go back, especially up the, up the north of Ireland, I, I, I went to visit Oma, and I went to Durngannon, and God, had a great system up there. The Great Northern was the best. But whatever happened, because it straddled halfway across the border there, you had one railway line from uh, up to Ma- from Mandarin Hamilton right up into Sligo itself, into Neskillen. It was called the Sligo Leitham and Northern Counties. It kept its independence right up to the finish. And it have, would have survived only that Inneskillen closed down. And when I ever go up that part of the country, it's a pity because I went into Oma lately and they have the bus service there. That are fantastic. And all the work and all the infrastructure and all it's a pity they just destroyed it because you mm. know, they, they have no sign of it. Just the north is a pity because they, all they have now really is up a fair as Jerry, isn't it? And yeah. that, that's about the height of it, you know. But when you look at uh rail travel, I know you said about the climate change and the environmental side of things. If you look at the rail network in Ireland and they were to electrify it, surely that there would be better for climate change and the environment and all that there if they were to upgrade from their diesels to electrification. Uh, but I do think myself, we, we haven't got a big enough population for it really because in Casarina whatever amount of trains have gone up and down sure if you're in over in any part of England you know you need, it, it, it doesn't pay mm-hmm. that, that's the reality of If you had more of a population and uh, should I th- think about Minute actually, it was actually closed when I was there and they reopened again you know they're getting a bit of sense and then I remember going up in the in the, in the 60s and you saw the remains of the tram system in Dublin and at that time you had the one up the Hoth and they closed that in 1959 and they were coming along and put the whole lot back again. The only downside of the tram system was that actually the, the, it ran in the middle of the street now the sort of but it's a pity that it has to I often think about what Mark Twain said history not only repeats itself but it goes in rhythm. <laughs> you know it goes back again you see the whole thing. Yeah. Next up, we're going to play Sean's second track for today. What have you got for us, Sean? Um, the second one I have uh, is from the Westley Railway. Are you right there, Michael? Right, by Brendan O'Dowder. And I like that one. I was often thinking, uh, if, if, if I was going to have a, a funeral, uh, I have a funeral everyone has, but that's one song I'd like to be played as, you know. You may talk of Columbus a-sailing across the Atlantic Sea, but he never tried to go railing from Ennis as far as Kilkee. You run for the train in the morning, the excursion is starting at eight. You're there when the clock gives a warning, and there for an hour you'll wait. And as you're waiting in the train, you'll hear the guards sing this refrain. Are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Do you think that you'll be there before the night? Oh, you've been so long and starting that you couldn't say for certain. Still, you might now, Michael, so you might. 
They find out where the engine's been hiding, and it drags you to sweet Corrafin. Says the guard back are down on the siding, there's the goods from Kilrush coming in. Perhaps it comes in in two hours, perhaps it breaks down on the way. If it does, says the guard, be the powers, we're here for the rest of the day. And while you sit and curse your luck, the train backs down into a truck. Are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Have you got the parcel there for Mrs. White? Oh, you haven't? Oh, Bigara, say it's coming down tomorrow. And it might. No, Michael, so it might. At La Hinch, the sea shines like a jewel. With joy, you are ready to shout. When the stoker cries out, there's no fuel, and the fire stay totally out. But hand up a bit of a log there, I'll soon have you out of a fix. There's a fine clamp of turf in the bog there, and the rest go a-gathering sticks. And while you're breaking bits of trees, you'll hear some wise remarks like these. Are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Do you think that you can get the fire to light? Oh, now you'll require, for the turf it might be drier. Well, it might now, Michael, so it might. Kilkey, oh, you'll never get near it. You're in luck if the train brings you back. For the permanent way is so queer, it spends most of its time off the track. Uphill, the old engine is climbing, while the passengers push with a will. You're safe when you reach an diamond, for all the way home is downhill. And as you're wobbling through the dark, you hear the guard make this remark. Are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Do you think that we'll be home before it's light? It all depends on whether the old engine howls together And it might now, Michael, so it might Welcome back. I'm joined in studio today by Sean Brown, owner of Hell's Kitchen Bar in Castle Ree and Castle Ree Railway Museum. Sean, even though your pub is closed, are you still doing tours of the museum? And how can people get in touch to find out more? Well, I... They have the museum open by appointment only because you could be there the whole day, you might have no, nobody. So if the ring 0872308152, say the day before, make a time, I'll meet them and bring them around. I have no problem with that at all. It'd be surprising the amount of people that ring, especially since the, the bit of publicity and the independent advertising is so important. Because yeah. I remember in the pub with this bloke coming in and he was in charge of Guinness advertising. And I says, isn't Guinness very popular? Why you keep advertising? Oh, it's important, he says, to tell people not to forget about you. Sean, you have a wedding video business that you've had for a long time. How did you get into the wedding video business? Well, I, I, I owe it to my wife, Anne, because um, back in the 70s, I'm talking about 75, 76, around that time, uh, she rented a, 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 cine, a cine camera. This is a film from Keeney's Below in Carrick. And I started recording trains and recording family stuff and then in 1978 she bought me one for a, pr a present so over that period of time I uh, used a cine and it was only for personal use but what I found about it was this that in fact then for three minutes you had to pay eight pounds so it meant that every shot you took you had to think about it because it was 
Because that's what I found, that when you went into the video business, the same discipline you brought with you. So in 1986, I bought a video camera for £2,000 from a local dealer there in Castlery called Seamus Coyne. And I found people, a couple were getting married, and it was the second time or third time to get married. And didn't I do the, the video? And uh, I was after buying a, a car from Lavins and Castlery, and I went out to the sunroof. And then people started asking me. So in 1988, then, I bought a professional video camera. It cost me £12,500. There was a premises sold down the street for the same amount of money, and they definitely said that man is mad in the head. But look, at it, 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 it worked out well. And the reason I started getting the business is because of the crack element, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I, was, I, I, was, um, I, I enjoyed it. And then on occasion, then, what had happened, you do a video today, and next day, then, I used to have a big screen in the pub, I'd have it edited at the wedding and showed, and they'd be all back in the bus, and that's how it happened. But the, the technology changed over the years. First of all, then the tape went out, and then in 2002, you went into a, a digital tape, and now you're into a, a little card. And this, this is how, how the whole thing changed. And now, um, the first thing you had a tape, then you had a disc, and now you have a little memory stick. And I, it won't be in my time, but the time will come, you'll do a job for someone, and they'll say, would you put up in the cloud to me? They won't even come near you. So that's the way the technology has changed. Mm-hmm. But thanks be to God, uh, the first time I uh, changed was with Mar- Morris or the Lord of Mercy, and we were great friends, and we got on mighty well. But we, the camera we had was four pounds eight, uh, and then the, it, it went to um, widescreen. But I think Morris did a wedding of a girl, and she was a she was a very very thin girl. But when he put it on the white screen, it made her twice as big. So I said, it's about time we started changing. She might have been too happy with that. Well, she wasn't. She wasn't a bit happy, you know. But I remember the Lord of Mercy, Michael Gappy, was another friend of mine too, who had passed away. But he said this girl was grinning or laughing. In the, in the video, and I said, you know, he, he, he take her out with it, but he said, if you charge her 200 for the edit, she won't be long taking the laugh of her. What do you, do you enjoy the most about the wedding photography business? Well, with, with the video, I used to do a bit of photography for a while, but, uh, and uh, most of the stuff I have, I kept the negatives, you know, but what I enjoy about it is the, the bit of banter and the crack is, you know, I, I still enjoy weddings, and I, I, I went to a house, and you'd, you'd have them maybe uh, getting up late for the wedding, or maybe getting them, and all enjoy that you know and I, I, I was in a house one day and I never met them before and I had them running up the stairs and big gods as I you know there's a television producer Mr. Me or something you know you see yeah. I, I, look at as part of being dyslexic I think if, if you have great people skills and that's the advantage of it you'd have a person now to be very intelligent all, but they wouldn't be able to w- yeah. work with people and uh, that's the biggest gift I have I think that I can get on with people and uh, it, it means a lot you know and I often say to young people, if they have that little bit of a gift, uh, it makes life that bit easier because you you not be getting yourself in hassle and you can solve problems and you know you don't have you don't have to sweat the small stuff, you know. Yeah, oh, for a couple of minutes ago, and you touched on it there. Uh, you said that you were only da- uh, diagnosed with dyslexia a couple of years ago. Oh no, it wasn't. I was diagnosed, but it was my uh, former teacher, Father Early. Mm-hmm. I remember well. He said, "Yeah, Shawnee, you were." Dyslectic. You were very smart, but you're very slow. <laughs> and I, I, I'm glad he told me that at the time. I mean, it was, it was, that's only five years ago. He died there last year, actually. But it was the best bit of good news I ever received because I, I thought there was something wrong with me. And when I knew that, then I 
But I, I knew that I found I had difficulty with Irish and, and stuff like that. And then when I was talking to my brother, he told me that his actually daughter had the same thing, but she's exempt from doing Irish. I'm glad that I can identify because yeah. in certain situations, it was lads in the, even when they had corporal punishment in, and they'd be getting them a, a hard time for something they had no control over. You know, yeah. and some of the most very successful people that like have Bronson, you know that fellow that does the, the, the Virgin Airlines. He yeah. has he has the same thing. Richard Bronson. Richard Bronson. That's it. But it, it's just that they, they have an intelligence that goes in one direction, and it mightn't be to do with languages or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they're brilliant at what they do. You see, you know. Sean, when you look back over your career, are you happy with your success that you've had? Do you hope the family will carry on the business in time to come, or what's I, your outlook? I know, but I. I um I find they let, I let them do their own thing. I wouldn't wish any of my family to uh, get involved with the prop trade, you know, because when I left at that time, well, it was taken over by uh, in a, uh, it was set. It was the best thing that ever happened because I, I think it's very tough life because you you, uh, you know you all you had at, when I was in at that time you had Christmas Day and you had Good Friday off, and then. But Jesus came along then and took Good Friday off it. And I used to enjoy them a couple of days. It's very hard because the customer respects you be there the whole time. And it's a hard chore, you know. And I think a lot of people that during the COVID, they've got out of the trade, they can see another side of life, you know, and where they can have, you know, they can have a sit down and go have their tea and, and stuff like that, you know. But I, anyone, I, I don't think a public will ever go to hell because he'll have it over before he goes at all. Are you <laughs> happy with how your career panned out? Yeah, I am. Look at, as long as you have your health. They say behind every good man is woman, behind the fold is two. <laughs> 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 you know, but no, which is great. And I'm looking for the two lads, David and Shane. And I mean, I can't complain. I think you should always put up your gratitude, you know. And be thankful for things because the whole thing is very short anyway because it's over like a blink of an eye, you know. Okay, that's all we have time on the show for today. I hope you enjoyed listening. I'd like to thank my guest, Sean Brown, for taking the time to join us. Uh, Margaret McHugh for helping me produce this show and Louis Fargo for helping us do the research. Join me next Thursday from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock for more of the business show. Our last pick of the day by Sean is... The last pick of the day is uh, The Gambler <laughs> because um, I often think that life is, uh, life is a gamble, really, you know. And as I said to you earlier on, when off by here, I said, wasn't Columbus a gambler and he, he discovered America? <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much, Cheers. Jim. On a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep So we took turns of staring Out the window at the darkness Till boredom overtook us And he began to speak He said, son, I've made a life Out of reading people's faces And knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind my saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet and his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold up Know when to fold up Know when to walk away And know 
run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done Every gambler knows That the secret to surviving Is knowing what to throw away Knowing what to keep Cause every hand's a winner And every hand's a loser And the best that you can hope for Is to die in your sleep And when he finished speaking He turned back toward the window Crushed out a cigarette Faded off to sleep And somewhere in the darkness The gambler he broke even But in his final words I found an ace that I could keep You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away And know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done You got to know when to hold them When to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away And know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Hi, Jim McCausland here, presenter of the Business R Show on Ross FM. Just dropping by to let you know the Business R Show airs every Thursday from 5pm to 6pm on Ross FM 94.6. To listen in, visit rossfm.ie forward slash live or download my weekly podcast from anchor.fm forward slash the Business R Show. Text your questions and comments to 083-85-99748 or info at rossfm.ie. The Business R Show, supporting local and international business through local radio. The Business Hour podcast is kindly sponsored by photo-me.ie.